as we look to our Lord now in prayer. And we're thanking you, God, for who you are, and thanking you for how you work, thanking you that you sent Jesus Christ into this world to die for our sins. And we're asking, Father, that in a very pivotal way in each of these services today, in the comings and goings of these summer days, that there is this movement of the Holy Spirit within our hearts, drawing our minds, souls, the entirety of our being to you. Father, whether it be in any of these services, or how things are being viewed on the internet, speak. Allow, Father, for your word to break in and make a difference in the situation, the circumstances people find themselves in, whether it be here or in live streaming. So, Father, the moments to come are significant. We're praying this now once again. She would warm these hearts. She would engage these minds. She would shape these wills. As again, now, Father, we've come here to see Jesus, him only. Pray these things again now in Jesus' name. Amen. Some of his books are in my office. A professor by the name of Robert Dick Wilson, one of the great professors of old Princeton Theological School. And one of his students was invited to come back and speak in Miller Chapel. Twelve years after he graduated, become a pastor. Now, Dr. Wilson, up in years at that point, came in, sat down in the front to hear his former student. The biographer tells us that at the close of the meeting, the elderly professor came up to his former student, tilted his head to one side, and said, if you come back again, I won't be coming to hear you speak. I only come once. I'm glad that you are a big godder. Now, the fellow was a little confused at that point, and he wanted to know just what the professor meant. And so the professor went on to say, well, you see, some men have, they have a little god, and they're always in trouble with him. He can't do miracles. He can't take care of the inspiration, transmission of the scriptures. He doesn't intervene on behalf of his people. They have a little God. I call them little goddess. Then there are those who have a great God, a sovereign God. He speaks. It's done. He commands. It stands fast. He knows how to show himself strong on behalf of them, that they fear him. And then putting his hand on his former student's shoulder, he looked him in the eyes and said, You have a great God. And your great God will bless your ministry. And he walked out the door. This extraordinary passage that you and I are looking at today has to do with the greatness of God. Now, when you are ministering to hurting people, somewhere along the way, they're going to begin to have to wrestle with, am I going to allow for my sufferings to be viewed as so great 
that they displace God. Or, well, I view my God as so great, he'll give me proper perspective on my sufferings. Somewhere along the way, you're going to have to grapple with greatness. Greatness as it relates to God, and greatness as it relates to suffering. And ask, and which wins out? But then you're reminded of the suffering servant who three days later was raised from the dead for your and my sins. What I want to do with you now is we're exploring the biblical counsels found here and using the insights that we've also drawn out from our bulletin insert, I want to draw out three major insights that are found in these verses. And the first begins with verse 24. And we'll take it down through verse 33. That is, you and I, as we counsel hurting people, begin by drawing attention to God's greatness. And know with me, first of all, how his presence is revealed. In verse 24, it's Elihu who begins his wrap-up. He says, remember to extol his work, God's work, of which men have sung. All mankind has looked on it. Behold, man beholds it from afar. Behold, God is great. This is what men through the years have sung. I was listening to the newsboys pulled off to the side of the road as I was pondering some of the words from the dawn of creation. This world has been crying out for hope. For a hero to save us, we long for the supernatural. But there is only one God who can save the day. So clear the stage, prepare the way. Because heaven and earth are singing. Glory, hallelujah, let the whole world see the greatness of our God. In awesome wonder he reigns forever. We know the greatness of our God. His power is endless. He lives within us. We know the greatness of our God. The greatness of our God. They're on to something. And so now, what you and I find is that when God created the world... He pronounced it good. But now, you and I find that due to the fallenness of humanity, we move from the stage of what I will call the good to the stage of the grown. You say, Gary, what do you mean by that? Paul had written, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy compared with the glory that's to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. But the Apostle Paul moved from nature to the pain of the person experiencing the groan when he adds, and not only the creation, but we ourselves groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for the adoption of sons. Which means then, historically, we move from 
the good, to second of all, the grown, to at the end, the glory. But right now we are suspended in all of this. And so the creation is expressing the groan. But then the newsboys kick it into gear and they capture your attention by reminding us that in the midst of the groan, we've got to look for the greatness and the greatness is found in God. And either we're going to attach greatness to our sufferings or we're going to attach greatness to our God. And we've got to choose somewhere along the way because one will give us perspective with regard to the other. As Elihu now is ministering at the point of need, Elihu is... He, he recognizes that Job has lost so much in life. So what does he do? Notice how many times this brilliant counselor, young as he is, utilizes the word behold, which is kind of like the way which today we'll say to somebody in the midst of our conversations when they're hurting, look. Now, you are using a visual statement to describe a verbal matter you want to get their attention. I oftentimes find, don't you, that when someone is hurting, you're going to have to find ways, visual means by which to re-engage their attention in order to address what matters most in their personal experience. Now, here's what Elihu is doing, what you and I need to learn. He utilizes the word, behold, you've got to find your own word, and he will repeat it because he wants to hold the attention of the one who's hurting to draw his attention to the God who is great because otherwise Job's going to consider the sufferings which are greater. But he says, God is great. We know him not. The number of his years is unsearchable. But then, but then notice what comes next here, and this is, this is fascinating here. He draws on nature. Now, throughout the book of Job, Job has demonstrated a capacity to think seriously about nature. And so the wisdom of the counselor is to listen very carefully now to what it is that the person values. And what that person values typically shows up in what that person says repeatedly. There has been a repeated emphasis upon nature throughout the book of Job. So now, what Elihu will do at this point is that he will use what I will call creational wisdom to allow Job to ponder the fact that there is a designer behind this design. And just as the creation is groaning, so likewise right now, Job, you are groaning. But I want you to see the greatness of God in the midst of the groans of life. Which is what a counselor needs to do, and what you and I need to do, is we traffic among people that are hurting, day in, day out. They need a fresh encounter with the greatness of God. But you're going to have to figure out a way to choose your on-ramp in order to get into the conversation and lead them in the direction of rethinking the whole matter of suffering in relationship to God, God in relationship to suffering. He uses nature. And notice what he does here. He starts off with condensation. He starts off with hydration. He deals with the matter of precipitation. For he draws up the drops, the drops of water. 
they distill his mist and rain, which the skies pour down and drop on mankind abundantly. And now a pivotal question. Before he uses his next behold, he uses a question. Can anyone understand the spreading of the clouds, the thunderings of his pavilion? Why does he ask that? Because evidently, according to Job, off in the distance, the book of Job, God is approaching in a whirlwind. You will see it in the very next chapter. In the Middle East, when I've been there, what I've noticed is that there are storm clouds that can be spotted miles and miles away. But you see them coming. You could be dealing with somebody who is hurting right now, and he sees something coming, she sees something coming. They don't know quite what to do and how to position themselves for the storm that's approaching in life. He notes this. Now, the wise counselor understands the circumstances, understands the situations, understands what I will call the ecology of the moment. And so now, here we find Elihu at this point, and he wants Job to develop the understanding that there is a big God, the greatness of God. 9-11. Hijacked American, United Airlines, World Trade Center Towers, Attack upon New York City, the Pentagon outside Washington, D.C. as well, field in Pennsylvania. And what was the shout at that point? Al-Akbar, which means in Arabic, God is great. Now, if only they had known the God and Father of Jesus Christ and his greatness. What you and I see culturally and globally is competition for greatness. Whose religion is greater? Whose God is greater? Which belief system is greater? When you and I begin to think seriously about the matter of greatness as it relates to suffering, We've got to point people's direction, their attention to God. Otherwise, they will be caught up in the greatness of their suffering. So now, for a second time, he will use a visual word. You're up with me now to verse 30, because once again now, Elihu, youngest of the counselors, says, Behold, it's possible Job's attention span was waning. He scatters his lightning about him and covers the roots of the sea. And by these he judges peoples. He gives food in abundance. He covers his hands with lightning. Commands it to strike the mark. It's crashing, declares his presence. That's why our first heading. His presence is revealed. Now, the cattle also declare that he rises. And I got to thinking about all of this, and I pulled out an astronomer's book who deals with climate change, Hugh Ross, who's written a brilliant commentary on the book of Job. And I drew out a number of points that he focuses upon as he analyzes chapters 37 through 39. One point. What God is doing is establishing an abundant, stable water cycle. 
with water in all three states, vapor, liquid, and ice. Another point. God's providing varied terrestrial habitats that allow diverse and abundant species to thrive. Third point. Fixing the precise amounts and kinds of precipitation, cloud cover, and lightning strikes to benefit diverse life forms, including nitrogen in the soil. And as I was reading this professor's writings and pondering the significance of what Hugh Ross was saying with regard to this, I see here, don't you, the greatness, the greatness of God. Hillsong United. Give me eyes to see more of who you are. May what I behold. There's Job listening as Elihu says, behold. Still my anxious heart and take what I have known and break it all apart. For you, my God, are greater still. No sky contains, no doubt restrains. All you are the greatness of our God. I spend my life to know, and I'm far from close to all you are the greatness of our God. And now you begin to ponder the significance of how God has established even a water cycle, a stable water cycle, so that God can use the extremes of life when necessary to bring and restore balance to life where needed. And where God will use the extremes of life when necessary to restore balance in nature where it's needed, just as God will do that climactically in the climate realm, he can also do that personally as well. And he will use the extremes of life likewise to reestablish a new sense of order and balance in our own personal realm. As they're watching the storms come in, as they're pondering the significance of who God is. And it's almost as if Elihu has not only a scientific mind, but a poetic mind. He would crush me with a storm, said Job in chapter 9, verse 17. He tears me down on every side till I am gone. He uproots me like a tree, Job would say again in chapter 19, verse 10. God has made my heart faint. Almighty has terrified me. Yet I am not silenced by the darkness, by the thick darkness that covers my face. You drive me up and snatch me up and drive me for the wind. You toss me about in the storm. Chapter 30, verse 22. And you and I consider the storms of life. And we think Jesus in the midst of the storm. He was able to sleep while the fishermen were frantic about him. What you and I have to bear in mind is that God controls the storms of life. He knows when we go into the storm. He watches over us in the storm. He brings us out of the storm. What fascinates me about Jesus in relationship to his disciples on that boat he led them into the storm rather than guiding them around the storm. There's God in his sovereignty. So metaphorically speaking right now, you might be saying, it seems as though God has just led me right into a storm. Could very well be. But then again, his disciples were led into a storm, not around a storm. 
And there was Jesus, so secure in his sovereignty, he could sleep. The question is, are you so secure with God's sovereignty that you can sleep in the storms of life? Not only is his presence revealed in chapter 36, 24 through 33, but second of all, his power, his power here is displayed in chapter 37, 1 through 13. Watch the power unfold. You're a counselor. How are you going to pull together the sense of God's presence with that person desperately needs with an understanding of God's power? Job values nature, so Elihu then has picked up on the patterns of Job's statements about nature, and so Elihu now uses nature. And at this also my heart trembles and leaps out of its place. Keep listening. Now notice how many times he talks about the voice of God in the midst of the thunder, the voice of God in the midst of the lightning. Verse 2, keep listening to the thunder of his voice and the rumbling that comes from his mouth. Under the whole heavens let it go and his lightning to the corners of the earth. Stop right there. Now if you were like me when you played sports, the moment lightning emerged in the skies, game halted, Everybody is taken off the field. During the summers, when I would work on a farm, my aunt's farm, lightning would appear, get off the tractor, head on into the house, wait for the storm to vanish. When I take that back to the agrarian culture that Job found himself in, because he lived in the time period of the book of Genesis, those people were so committed to working for the sake of survival that they at times needed storms to break in so that they would reestablish a sense of rest in their lives. They lacked a Sabbath for their own everyday well-being. There are times when God is going to bring a storm into your life, forcing you to stop, rest, Become reflective. Find out just where true greatness is found. Some of us are struck with illness. It's an extraordinary time of reflection. Where in Elihu's call, so four times in chapter 36, he utilized the word behold. Job's now going to have to reflect upon not only that, but also Elihu's teaching upon the Messiah that you and I explored last week in chapter 33, verses 23 through 28. And here now, what you and I see furthermore is that Elihu's prepping Job for God. And the wise counselor realizes that no matter what you are counseling in, whether it be educational or medical, Whatever the situation is, you are taking today and connecting it to tomorrow because today is your preparation time for tomorrow's experiences in life. And so now, with the storm approaching, here's the voice of God. Verse 4, his voice roars. He thunders with his majestic voice. He does not restrain the lightnings when his voice is heard. God thunders wondrously with his voice. He does, not, he does great things we cannot comprehend. 
But what I want you to see, and this is brilliant when it comes to the way in which this is put together, Jesus is in the midst of all this. Job is at the ash heap. And this is a four seasons ash heap. Because verses 1 through 5, verses 1 through 5 here that you and I are exploring together deal with autumn. Verses 6 through 10 deal with winter. For to the snow, he says, fall on the earth. And now you think about God's sovereignty when it comes to even the snowfall. And you ask yourself, and how can I utilize that to minister to a hurting person? Well, Howard and Clarence Jones, who were part of the Billy Graham Association, they used that to minister to hurting people. Together they were driving along in a blizzard when suddenly Clarence Jones felt compelled, the biographer writes, to stop the car right in the middle of the highway. And the next moment, scarcely six feet in front of their stopped vehicle, a train swooshed past. God speaks in our storms. He speaks in the autumn of life. He speaks in the winter of life. If you take it up to verse 9, Notice how cognizant Elihu is of what's coming his way. From its chamber comes the whirlwind. If you look at chapter 38, verse 1, the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind. So out of the midst of these, this upcoming storm that's approaching now, Elihu is prepping Job for God to speak. The wise counselor is continuously prepping the person who's hurting to hear the word of the Lord. Storm clouds are approaching. Behold, are you listening? Look, whether it be autumn, winter, what about spring? Check out 11 through 13. He loads the thick cloud with moisture. The clouds scatter his lightning. They turn around and around by his guidance to accomplish all that he commands them on the face of the habitat, habitable world. And whether for correction or for his land or for love, he causes it to happen. Speaking for university, various campuses in the east years ago. And I'm on my way to Oberlin College. I miss, my, I miss my exit. Don't know why. Storm in the midst, though. So I, I look for the next exit and turn around and go back. Only to find that the campus had been evacuated because a tornado had struck. At the time in which I missed my exit. There's purpose in the storm. And there's purpose when you miss the exits of life. When you think, I should have gotten off back then. And why am I still on this road anyways? Whether it be autumn, winter, spring, summer, God is at work. And God uses the design of life to point us to the designer of life.
In her book, Life and Death in Shanghai, Nian Sheng tells the story that after the communists overthrew Chiang Kai-shek in 1949, she and her husband decided to stay because her husband was a general manager for Shell Oil. Only international, multinational company that chose to remain. When her husband died in 57, Shell hired her as a special advisor. But in 1966, Mao Zedong launched the revolution. Nian was arrested, beaten, taken to prison. She remained in solitary confinement for six years, wondering, where are you, God? And why am I going through this, God? But then listen to the rest of the story. One afternoon, while lying in her cell, a spider crawled in, began to climb up one of the iron bars of her window. She said she watched it climb steadily to the top. It was such a long walk for this tiny creature, she says. When it reached the top, it swung out, descended on a silken thread spun from its body. After it secured its thread to the other end of the bar, it crawled back to where it had started, swung out in a new direction, and Yen was fascinated by the fact the spider knew exactly what to do, where to take the next thread, when to do it without any hesitation or mistake, and when it had made the frame, it proceeded to make an intricate web that was perfect with all the strands evenly spaced, and Yen watched this architectural feat within her cell, hurting from the beatings she had incurred. What the biographer tells us next is that she was simply flooded with questions. Who had taught the spider to make the web? Could it really have acquired the skill through evolution, or did God make that spider with the ability to make a web for catching food and perpetuating its species? She told us this spider helped her in the midst of her questionings to see that God was in control. Now you're about to enter into the midst of questionings. Job needs to see that God is in control. Check out the questions. They flow from 24 through 34. Because thirdly, as you and I, as we counsel hurting people, Draw attention to God's greatness and how his people are prepared. Hear this, O Job. And notice he mentions his name again. Unlike all the other counselors in the book of Job, this one, though the youngest of all the counselors, is the only one who will continuously utilize Job's name. He keeps it personal. And when you're ministering to hurting people, keep it personal. Notice that he was able to move from the natural realm and even climactic matters, climate matters, into the personal realm, Job. He builds a bridge. Take whatever circumstances that hurting person is going through, build a bridge into that, own per that person's experience, and use the name, Job. Listen. Stop and consider the wondrous works of God. Questions. Do you know how God lays his command upon them? Causes the lightning of his cloud to shine? Question. Do you know the balancing of the clouds and the wondrous works of him who is perfect in knowledge? You whose garments are, are hot when the earth is still because of the south wind? Question. Can you like him spread out the skies hard as a cast metal mirror? 
question. And now, notice what he does next. He puts out the challenge. Teach us. We're listening, Job. Teach us what we shall say to him. <laughs> Job's going to have to grapple with him. What am I going to say to God when God starts to question him? We cannot draw up our case because of darkness. Shall be told him that I would speak? Did a man ever wish that he would be swallowed up? And so he brings it to a finale. You've noticed, as I pointed out in our insert today, how Elihu utilizes the word behold four times. You've pondered the Elihu's prior messianic counsel in chapter 33, verse 23 through 28. You're going to grapple furthermore with the fact that Elihu now is silencing Job. Job is quite a talker. But notice how in the book of Job, one after another, a silencing occurs. Satan is silenced in the opening chapters. Then one of the counselors, Zophar, is silenced. And then the rest of the counselors are silenced. Then... Job is silenced. Elihu is silenced. And once everybody is silenced, they're ready to listen. Because at the end, God speaks. And he speaks in the form of questions. Are you listening in the midst of your pain? Conclusion? And now no one looks on the light when it is bright in the skies, in verse 21. When the wind has passed and cleared them. Out of the north comes golden splendor. But notice how he closes the loop of reasoning. God is clothed with awesome majesty. The Almighty. We cannot find him. He is great in power. And notice he began what is known now as the hymn of suffering of chapter 36, verse 24, and ends with the greatness of God in this hymn of suffering, where you find now in chapter 37, verse 23, he is great in power, justice and abundant righteousness he will not violate. And now I want you to see how brilliant Elihu is. Because how does the book of Job begin in chapter 1, verse 1? There were four distinctives about Job that stood out when we began the series in January. And one of the four in chapter 1, verse 1, is that he feared God. Elihu now closes the loop, which a good counselor does. And notice what he says. Therefore, men fear him. And then I can see him almost taking a side look at the other counselors. And adds, he does not regard any who are wise in their own conceit. Job silenced. Elihu has silenced Job. Nobody else could do it. Which means now, through a series of questions, Elihu now has positioned Job and prepared Job to hear God's questions. Are you listening, Job? Joel Beakey, in his book, God Used the Thunderstorm, says, The mountains are dark and looming as the lightning splits across the sky. The forest offers shelter, and in the distance the traveler spots a lamp. 
rushing toward the door. He doesn't realize someone has planned this journey. There's a woman in the house. She needs to hear about Jesus as Savior and Lord. And God has sent this traveler in the midst of the storm to tell her about Jesus. For you see, people, God positions you and me so that when storms have now got the other person's attention, we can talk about who truly is great. We can talk about Jesus and have an impact for his glory. Let's stand together. Some of us have storm clouds in the distance. But then we have to remember that you spoke in the storm to Job. So for any of us, Father, right now that find ourselves, metaphorically speaking, as in the storm, we need to pause like we do when lightning strikes. Get off the field. Reflect. Think. Maybe you are using extreme measures to restore balance in our lives. But we need to stop and reflect. For those that are busy counseling hurting people, help us to use the wide range of opportunities that you give us, avail us to, to be able to focus the attention upon your greatness. Because ultimately we're going to have to decide is it the suffering that is greater than God or is it God greater than the suffering? And then we go to the cross where the suffering one died for our sins. Three days later, greatness revealed. You raised him from the dead. And we move from the groan to the glory. And for this, Father, we give you all the praise. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you.